I'm Assistant Vice President for Huntington Bank. I'm a high school student. I am a employee health nurse supervisor at Mount Carmel East Health Centers. I became a Price follower in 2001. In 1982. I became a follower of Price at approximately uh, 10 years old. I've been at New Life since March of 1986. I've been at New Life since I was about five years old. For approximately 10 years. Uh, I grew up in church. I grew up going to a Baptist church. I grew up not attending church. The biggest challenge uh, in my walk is just being different than other people at school. The biggest challenge with my walk with Christ is daily Bible study. The biggest challenge in my walk with Christ is being in the Word daily. I am everybody. I am everybody. I am everybody. All right, once you've uh, warmed some folks up, you can go ahead and head back to your seat, and uh, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. There's a lady after the first hour here this morning who came up to me and said, Pastor Steve, you know I used to attend here, and I've moved down to North Carolina, but you need to know that this church is a very special place. And she said, it's not you. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, She said, it's the people of new life. She said, I've been gone for months, and I've come back, and people invited me to sit with them. Somebody invited me out to lunch. Somebody prayed for me. And he said, this is, she said, this is just a very special place, and you need to know that. So I wanted to pass that on to you. And I hope you will always keep cultivating that welcoming spirit that you have and reaching out to each other and reaching out to people who appear to be new <laughs> and have that look about them, you know, looking around, just... Go ahead and go to them and encourage them and find out what's going on in their lives, okay? So praise God for that. Well, I want to begin today with several scriptures, and as I read them, see if you can tell what the theme is. Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. John 17, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. I do not ask for these only, talking about his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, they may also be in us, so the world may believe that you've sent me. 1 Corinthians 1.9 from last weekend. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You see it? Unity. Oneness, fellowship. You know, unity among the people of God is a dominant theme throughout the whole Bible. It's the deep, deep desire of God that his people dwell together in unity. And when they do, it's a good and a pleasant thing, isn't it? It's a beautiful thing. It's clear from Jesus' prayer that this is a spiritual unity rooted in the unity that exists in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who are three and yet one. And so, in essence, God calls his people into a fellowship that he created, that he enjoys. Come, he says, be one with us. Well, this church at Corinth that we've been getting to know was missing this. Just like several of the churches that I grew up in. The people in that church were taking sides on certain issues. They were lining up behind their favorite personalities in the church. 
instead of growing together as a body of believers, they had become fragmented, splintered, breaking apart into factions, and quarreling and arguing and fighting about who was better and who was first and who was best. So instead of things being good and pleasant, they were not good and unpleasant. Ugly, really. Instead of reflecting the oneness of God, they were divided. Instead of enjoying the fellowship of the Son together, they were coming apart. Instead of offering a powerful, unified testimony to the world around them, to the culture around them, their witness was tainted and diluted. And so the very first issue that Paul tackles in his letter of 1 Corinthians is this matter of disunity. And I thought, well, why does he start here? There were so many issues, so many problems in this church that he could have addressed. Drunkenness, immorality, marriage issues, taking each other to court. What prompted him to address this issue first? And I believe it's because this issue of divisions and factions in the church most clearly revealed what was at the root of all the problems and all the sins in that church. I think Paul wanted to expose the underlying sin that gave rise to all the other sins and issues in the church at Corinth. So let's see if we can understand it through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. So Lord God, I pray that you would send the Spirit to teach us today. May the convicting and convincing and eye-opening ministry of the Holy Spirit be alive among us here in this room today. Will you open our eyes to the truth about that church and about this church? And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, read with me Paul's appeal as he opens up this section of dealing with this issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Would you read this verse aloud with me? I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you will be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Notice that Paul starts by making an appeal. Now, he could have commanded. He was an apostle. He was the founder of that church. He'd pastored them for 18 months. He could have started out by saying, I demand that you come together and be united. But he doesn't. He he comes alongside them like a brother almost and says, I, I plead with you, I beg you, I implore you, be united, come together. Now there is authority in this appeal. He invokes a name, doesn't he? Whose name? <laughs> the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a name that has some weight to it. And he basically says, look, For Jesus' sake, because of who Jesus is and what he stands for, and because Jesus has called you into the the fellowship of the Son, be united, come together. And there's a threefold description of the kind of unity that Paul is pleading for here. Three short phrases. Do you see them? That all of you agree. I appeal to you that all of you agree. Literally, it means that all of you say the same thing, speak the same thing. You're all saying different things, is what he was contending here. And and it's confusing people. Then he says that there be no divisions among you. The Greek is schismata, schisms. Literally, it means to tear or to rip apart. And he's saying, you guys are tearing apart the church. You're ripping it apart into pieces. 
And then the third phrase is, be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And the word united there literally means to mend a rip in a garment or in a fabric, to mend it, to sew it back together. And so he's saying, mend those tears that you have created in the fabric of the body of Christ there. Come together as one by becoming like-minded. And so Paul, the spiritual shepherd, starts his letter by appealing to the people of this church to mend the tares, heal the schisms, to disband the little factions that had formed, and to come back together as one united body, to become like-minded once again and start saying the same things instead of everybody spouting their own opinions about everything all the time. And to do it for Jesus, for his sake. I want to take a moment and talk a little bit about unity, biblical unity, because people have all kinds of notions of what being unified means. Let me share what biblical unity is and what it is not. First off, biblical unity is not everyone agreeing about everything. That ain't going to happen this side of heaven. If you're looking for a church where everybody agrees about everything, keep looking. You haven't found it here, and you won't find it. And that's not biblical unity. But biblical unity is everyone agreeing on the main things. The main things. Later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to challenge the Corinthians to develop some mental categories, some categories in their minds that will help them differentiate between issues that are worth fighting for and issues that aren't. Do you have some categories like that in your mind, by the way? I do. I have three categories. Absolutes. Convictions, preferences. Three bins, three categories that I place every issue in so I know if I'm supposed to die for it or just argue about it or scuffle a little bit over it. Like absolutes, like Jesus is God. The Bible is the word of God. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus rose from the dead. The Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is coming back. Those go in the absolutes bin. They are true, black and white in Scripture. You die for those things. Convictions are things that are not crystal clear in Scripture. The Scriptures might give some principles regarding them. Whether or not Christians should speak in tongues. When the rapture is going to occur in God's plan. Whether Christians should go see certain kinds of movies. That's an area where you've got to form some, com- some convictions, but not put them over here in the absolutes bin. There's some gray areas. Preferences is, I like blue over red. I like, you know, certain kinds of music. Those are preferences. Absolutes, you apply to everyone everywhere. Convictions, you apply to yourself and your family. Preferences, just for yourself. Later on, Paul's going to help us in chapter 8 develop some some of these mental categories, so we know the difference between these things. Biblical unity involves coming together around the absolute truths of the Word of God, uniting around them, while accepting that we have some differences among us in these other gray area or preference issues, and be okay with that. Second, biblical unity is not the complete absence of any and all conflict. (laughs) Um. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen anyway. Now, if conflict is constantly raging in your marriage or in your family or in your small group or in your church, well, that's going to affect unity for sure. 
But to feel all defeated and feel like unity is gone just because some conflict erupts in your marriage or your family or one of these other settings, that's not biblical thinking. More important to unity is how you handle conflict, how you address it, if you address it, in mature ways. Third, biblical unity is not uniformity. Paul is not here pleading with this church that all of them dress the same, look the same, wear their hair the same. He's not appealing that they all be carbon copies of each other. Although I've been in some churches where it kind of felt like that. He is not advocating assembly line Christianity where everybody rolls off the line identical. That's just weird. (laughs) Cultic. That's not what he's calling for. Number four, biblical unity is not tolerance of any and all lifestyles and beliefs. Some people like to think that that's the road to true unity, just do away with all standards and requirements and never correct anybody and never tell anybody that they're wrong. But Paul's going to spend the next 16 chapters correcting wrong belief and wrong behavior. So we know that's not what he had in mind for unity. Listen, biblical unity occurs when a community of believers forsakes their own individual agendas and passionately devotes themselves to a person and to his truth. That's biblical unity. It's more than just getting along. It's oneness of heart, oneness of purpose, oneness of mission, oneness of passion, oneness of belief. And so Paul appeals to this church, come together around Jesus Christ. Be united in a true biblical sense. But I ask, well, what was prompting it? What was going on in that church there that prompted him to call for unity? And we know that Paul was not there physically present with them, but he had eyes and ears in Corinth. Years ago, somebody told me this. Always remember that it works the same in the church family as it does in your own family. Everything gets back to daddy. And that's what was happening there. Reports of quarreling and arguing We're getting back to Paul, verse 11 of chapter 1. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. (laughs) We don't know exactly who Chloe was. Apparently, um, you know, this is not Jack Bauer's sidekick on 24. It's a different Chloe. Apparently a prominent lady in the church there, well-connected, enough to have her own people. And somehow word got back to Paul through Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. Verse 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So Chloe's people somehow got word to Paul that the church was breaking into camps. It was fragmenting. It was coming apart. What was going on? Well, people were doing what people are prone to do. They were lining up behind their favorite teachers. They were putting them onto pedestals. They were rallying around personalities, making celebrities out of them, saying, you know, my guy's better than your guy, creating factions and tribes within the church. Some have called this the celebrity-driven church or the personality cult. 
turning pastors into rock stars. <laughs> now, thankfully in this church, we don't have any rock star pastors. But I decided to have a little fun with this, and I asked our graphic artist, Enver, to turn some of our pastors into rock stars. And so uh, let's see what he came up with. All right, you can put that first slide up there. You always knew Pastor Claude was a closet rocker, didn't you? <laughs> How about the next one? That's Pastor Jay in his earlier days when he was the lead singer for Guns N' Roses. How about the next one? <laughs> yeah. Pastor Brian rocking the house. I don't even know what to say about that one. We should put those on the website and uh, let people take a look at those. Now, of course, I get an exemption from this, thankfully. Well, um, we don't have rock star pastors in this church. And uh, these men, as you know, are humble and men who are grateful to just be in the ministry and be able to serve Christ. But this whole notion of breaking apart into camps is very intriguing to me for many reasons. Let's take a look at these four camps. First off, some of the people in that church were saying, we follow Paul, Paul's peeps, Paul's brigade. And you can probably understand why some people would be lining up behind Paul. After all, he was an apostle. As an apostle, he'd been given miraculous gifts. He could perform signs and wonders, and of course, that would draw people to him. He was a big star in Christianity. He wrote half the New Testament for crying out loud. So people were lining up behind him. Beyond that, he was the founding pastor of the church. He'd ministered there for a year and a half. And so apparently some of the folks there were feeling an allegiance to Paul and were enjoying being known as his followers. Now, maybe after they finished reading this letter, maybe that would thin out the ranks of the Paul followers because he's going to skewer them pretty good. So that was one group. We follow Paul. Then the second group, we follow Apollos. You say, who's that? Is that Apollo Ono who won all the medals on the ice skating track at the Olympics? No, different guy. Apollos Army, we might call it. Apollos was likely the second pastor of the church in Corinth, following Paul. Talk about following a legend. How would you like to follow Paul as the pastor of a church? Huge shoes to fill. You can read about Apollos in Acts 18. He was from Alexandria, Alexandria apparently uh, university trained there. And um, Acts 18 tells us that Apollos was a very polished, gifted eloquent speaker. And of course, in that culture, having oratory skills was highly valued, and Apollos was one of the best. He was the kind of speaker that could speak in such a way that would have a crowd eating out of his hand, just gifted. When I think of Apollos, I think of uh, a guy like Ergen Kainer. Remember when he was here a couple years ago? Just gifted, like all oh, get out to preach and speak and teach. And so people were lining up behind Apollos. Perhaps they were claiming that he was easier to listen to than Paul, or funnier, or deeper, or something. In any event, they were saying, hey, we'll take Apollos over Paul any day. We're part of Apollos' army. Then there was a third group, Cephas' cronies. You know who Cephas was, right? 
Greek name for Peter. Yeah, Peter. So some people were lining up behind Peter. Perhaps Peter's groupies were saying, hey, our guy was one of the original 12 disciples. Unlike your dudes, he was the real deal. He lived with Jesus. He preached at Pentecost. He started the first church in Jerusalem. We like our preachers hot and hard-hitting and tight with Jesus. So we're followers of Peter. He's our guy. Now, we don't know that Peter was ever in Corinth. And there weren't any podcasts back then, so it's not like they were downloading his sermons and you know, tracking with him that way. But maybe they had acquired some manuscripts of his sermons from over in Jerusalem, had made their way over to Corinth. I don't know. We're not sure, but we do know that Peter was still alive at this time. And he was certainly quite famous among Christians, especially those who'd been converted from Judaism. And so he had his fan base in this church as well. We follow Peter. Then there's this final group. Who are they? The Jesus people, right? Christ's crowd. And we're not really sure what to make of this group. It's possible that they may have been genuine reformers within this church, who saw the man-centered celebrity worship that was going on and were saying, hey guys, we're supposed to be about Jesus, come on back. Or they may have been those hyper-spiritual, we only submit to Jesus, part of that crowd that you find in churches sometimes, those guys who say, you know, we don't really respect or you know, regard human teachers, we only listen directly to Jesus Christ. We don't know for sure. We do know that this group is not mentioned again in the letter, nor is the Peter group. Apparently, the most active and visible groups were the followers of Paul and Apollos, which makes sense because those were the guys who had pastored the church and who were actually, had actually been there. So the church is dividing into camps behind their favorite teachers. Now, this appears to be the doing of the people in the congregation. There's no evidence that the teachers themselves had contributed to this or were fueling it anyway. They were good, godly men. Well, Jesus, right? I mean, but we know that teachers can and sometimes do fuel movements. Certainly in our day, there are nationally known rock star celebrity pastors who seem intent on building a following for themselves and creating a tribe and plastering their faces everywhere and promoting themselves. You know, the website of their church is their name, (laughs) joesmith.com or whatever. Sometimes I wonder what Jesus thinks of all that. Even within a church, it's possible in fleshly moments for good and gifted teachers maybe unwittingly, to build a following, a fan base. We've seen it several times over the years. Hey, if you really want the deep teaching, come on over here with me. This is where you're going to get the good stuff. One reason I think James cautions people from rushing into teaching ministry is this very reason. There are a whole new set of temptations that come to teachers that can trip you up if you're not mature or even if you are mature. So Paul writes, look, Chloe's people have filled me in. You guys are lining up behind your favorite teachers. You're creating different camps within the church. 
You're quarreling about who is better and who's more spiritual or who's deeper. You're splintering. You set up rivalry between good and godly men who want nothing to do with it. You're tearing up the church. And it's tearing up the heart of Jesus. And he appeals to them. He implores to them. Cease and desist doing that. And he's going to address it. He's going to deal with it. He's going to build a case. A strong, airtight case for them to become a Jesus-centered church, not a personality-driven church. Watch what he does. Verse 13. He asks a series of rhetorical questions meant to demonstrate how absurd their thinking was to do what they were doing. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Then he has kind of a senior moment. Well, I guess I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I can't remember whether there was anybody else I baptized. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul is using a logical device called reductio ad absurdum in Latin, a form of argument in which a proposition is disproven by following its implications to a logical but absurd end. He asks a series of rhetorical questions meant to dismantle whatever defense this church might have had for what they were doing. First question, is Christ divided? Answer, no. Of course not. That's ridiculous. Christ is not divided and his body shouldn't be either. Second question, was Paul crucified for you? Answer, No, of course not. That's absurd. Now, this is tactical brilliance by Paul. He could have gone after Apollo's followers. He could have gone after Peter's followers. But who's he going after? His guys. He's killing himself off first. This is brilliant. He's taking it to his little band of followers. Hey, guys, did I die on the cross for your sins? Did you see me hanging on a cross for you? Hello? That is absurd. In fact, he he would have said, I got crucified for. I was died for, just like you all. I'm a sinner too. I need a Savior too. And there's only one Savior, and his name's Jesus. So why are you lining up behind me? Why are you boasting in me? Why are you putting me on a pedestal? That's what he's saying. I wasn't crucified for you. Now, Paul did want to be listened to. He did want his authority recognized, as we saw last week. But he did not want the church to be centered around him. Third question. Were you baptized? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Answer? No. When we baptize people, we didn't go, I now baptize you in the name of Paul. No. We baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is very significant because baptism basically symbolizes a renouncing of all old allegiances and defines our brand new allegiance to Jesus Christ. 
And so Paul's saying, look, your allegiance isn't to be to me ultimately. I'm glad you appreciate the fact that I came to you and preached the gospel to you and some of you were saved under my ministry. I'm, I, you know, I note that you're grateful for that and that's fine, but your allegiance, your primary allegiance should be to Jesus Christ, not to me. Then some people apparently were, were saying, well, but Paul, you were the one who actually baptized me. You were the one who took me down in the water and brought me back up. Doesn't that count for something? Shouldn't I be devoted to you? And he's saying, look, I, my primary ministry was not baptizing people. I only baptized Crispy Crispus and Gaius and a few others. But beyond that, nobody else I can remember. He reminds them that his call to apostleship was primarily a call not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. For the most part, Paul let other people do the baptizing, maybe for this very reason. So do you follow his argument here? Do you follow the case that he's making? The case for a Jesus-centered church. Three points. Number one, Christ is not divided, so you shouldn't be divided either. Number two, My followers need to realize that I'm not their savior. Jesus is. He's the one who was crucified and died on the cross. And number three, even if I did baptize you, we baptize new believers in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, not me. So your primary allegiance should be to God. And so Paul, in effect, is telling this church, stop it. Stop elevating mere humans beyond what is appropriate. Even good men... Even great Bible teachers, even those who led them to Christ, stop forming cliques and camps and wearing their jersey to church and all this stuff. Stop it. It's about Jesus, not about men. There's a place later on in 1 Corinthians where he's going to say, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? Simply servants of Jesus Christ. Just guys. Just guys. He concludes his case, verse 17, by saying, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of, his, of its power. In other words, I'm not sure why my groupies are so gaga about me anyway. All I did was preach a simple message, the gospel, and I, you know I wasn't trying to impress you with my speaking skills, my oratory skills. By the way, there is a kind of preaching, there is a way to preach the message of Christ that empties the message of the cross of its power, that nullifies the power of Christ in the gospel. There is a way. You just need to be aware of that, and I need to be aware of that. Some preachers think that the cross is the place where you shine. But it's not. It's the place where you die. Well, Paul is going to elaborate on the message of the cross, the gospel, and how different people respond to hearing the gospel. And that's for next week. So let's pause for a moment. Let's just ask the question once again. How might the Holy Spirit want to apply what we've learned from his word this morning to us to New Life Church Gehanna here in the 21st century? What might the Spirit of God want to say to us? On the backside, 
thought about this and prayed about it. Several things. First, favorite Bible teachers. How many of you have favorite Bible teachers? And now you're going to say, no, no, no. Used to, but not as of a half hour ago, I don't. (laughs) Look, it's okay. I have favorite Bible teachers. There there are guys who I feel in a special connection to. God uses to to minister to me. It's okay to have favorite Bible teachers, favorite worship leaders. I don't think Paul is saying, you know, never have any favorites again. I think what he's saying is do not cross the line and elevate them and put them on a pedestal. Don't put them in the spotlight that's reserved for one, Jesus Christ. They're human like you. They got died for like you got died for. All of them have feet of clay. All of them. May I remind you, all of us have feet of clay. And so appreciation is fine. Idolatry is evil. And he's saying, be discerning, know the difference. Be grateful, sure. Don't worship them. And don't divide the body into your favorite, you know, I am of MacArthur and I am of Driscoll and I'm of Piper and I'm of Andy Stanley. All those guys are good guys, but they're just guys. Second, man-centered Christianity. We must become aware of the creeping influence of man-centered orientation and worldview and theology into our lives and into this church. You know what man-centeredness is, right? And God-centeredness. Two vastly different foundations upon which to build a life, a ministry, a church. Man-centered thinking starts with who? Man, with us. With our needs, our desires, our goals, our purposes, our agenda. God-centered thinking starts with God. His desires, his will, his purposes, his agenda. Man-centered worship makes much of man. God-centered worship makes much of God. Man-centered thinking believes that God exists for us. God-centered thinking knows that we exist for God and his pleasure and his glory. Man-centered ministry puts human beings in the spotlight and elevates them. God-centered ministry seeks to always put the spotlight on who? On Jesus. Man-centeredness is the foundation of our culture. God-centeredness is the foundation of kingdom culture. And the truth is that man-centered thinking may have crept into the foundation of Christ's church. And it's so subtle because we're men and women. We're human. So we tend to start with us and our deal and our stuff. And friends, this was the problem in the Corinthian church that I talked about earlier. This was the foundational issue. This was the underlying sin that gave rise to all the other sins and problems in that church, a man-centered orientation that said, it's really all about me, us, my stuff, my agenda, my deal. And it gave rise to all kinds of issues. Immorality, drunkenness, jockeying for position in the church, out-of-control worship services. People using their spiritual gifts for their own glory. It's subtle, it's popular, and it is corrosive to a body of believers. Let's come together around Jesus. Jesus. 
Third, protecting unity. That's certainly a message in this section. Divisiveness is so poisonous to a body. I, I enjoy hearing people's stories of their church experiences growing up. And, you know, being in this church or that church. And most of the time, though, the story I hear doesn't have a good ending because something happened in that church. Somebody went underground and created a movement and poisoned the water stream and things started to come apart. And it happens. And there's an evil one who is very smart, who's strategic in how he plants divisive people in churches. Paul told a pastor once, he said, warn a divisive person once, then twice. If he doesn't respond to you, have nothing to do with him. Get him out of the fellowship or her because they will poison the church. You see, Jesus Christ created unity. We don't create it. He created it through his death on the cross. But he charges us with the responsibility to preserve it, to protect the unity of the body. And sometimes, you know, in weak moments, there are people who want to sow seeds of discord and strife and pit people against each other. There's some people who are not happy unless they're stirring things up. They're just not happy. And I would say, go be happy somewhere else. God's doing an incredible work in this church right now. He's pulling us towards Jesus-centeredness, and none of us would want to see that sabotaged or undermined or poisoned what if we gave each other permission when we see or hear in weak moments or fleshly moments one of our brothers or sisters sowing seeds of discord pitting people against each other saying come on over here you get the you get the deep stuff over here with me what if we gave each other permission to call each other out on that and say hey man don't do that you're gonna that's gonna hurt the body christ is not divided Christ is one. It's a call here to protect the unity that Jesus created. Protecting the fellowship of the Son is all of our responsibility. Then last, Jesus-centered church. You know, churches can get focused on all sorts of things. Programs, buildings, money, personalities. Churches can get centered on politics, issues, rights, even good things like morality or service or good preaching or music or certain ministries can be given center stage. Gifted people can be become the focus. Let's be diligent to keep Jesus Christ front and center in this church. The one we worship the one we adore, the one we bow down to, the one we talk about, the one in whose name we pray. The only one who died on that cross for our sins and rose from the dead as we sang about Jesus. You say, do I have a part in helping this church become more and more Jesus-centered? Absolutely, we all do. We all do. I find myself using the same phrases repeatedly when people ask, what's God doing at New Life lately? I keep saying the same things. He's he's pulling us towards God-centeredness. He's pulling us towards being driven by the gospel. He's pulling us towards Jesus' focus. That's what he's doing. The biggest compliment you could give to 
any of our pastors or teachers here. You know, sometimes you finish a sermon and people come up and say, thank you, pastor, that was a great sermon. And that's okay. But you know what we really want to hear? Thank you, pastor. I am more devoted to Jesus Christ than I was 45 minutes ago. I'm more committed to Jesus. I see Jesus as more glorious, as greater than I did just a few moments ago. Praise God for that. That's what we want to hear. Because this church is not about me or any personality. It's about Jesus Christ. You long for a Christ-centered church? I long to be part of a Christ-centered church, and I long to start Jesus-centered churches. Our elders have been praying recently about what God might want to do through us in giving birth to, to more churches. And we're, we're praying about four churches in the next three years, starting four churches in the next three years. But not just any kind of church, Jesus-centered churches. That's what's needed. You can start praying about that with us if, if indeed God would have us go that direction. And that would mean that Many of you will just need to pray and be open to God, what he might have for you in that whole plan. Well, what we'll see next weekend is that the Jesus-centered church is driven by one thing, the cross, the gospel of Christ. Paul, our teacher, will hammer home the truth that the gospel of Christ must become central to everything that we do and say. And so, Lord Jesus, take us there, we pray, as a church. Take us there. Lord, you know I've been praying this week that if there are those within the sound of my voice this weekend in this room who have been sowing seeds of discord, who've been stirring things up, who've been pitting people against each other, Lord, you know I've been praying that the Spirit of God would convict them and would give them no rest until they repent. May your kindness, Jesus, lead them to repentance, because you are not divided. You are one. And, O oh Lord, would you lead us to the cross, lead us to a Jesus-centered church, not a man-centered church. Lord, may New Life Church Gehenna be protected from personality cult, from celebrity-driven worship. May we fix our eyes each and every day on Jesus. And Lord, I'm keenly aware that a Jesus-centered church is full of Jesus-centered people. So Lord, take us there. Take us to the cross. I pray in your precious name. Amen.